The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, August 19th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Here is an underreported part of the Ryan Lochte saga. There are three other swimmers who thought it would be a good idea to let Ryan Lochte decide how they would explain the time they paid restroom restitution to an armed Brazilian restroom guard. Three other people in this world said, you know what? Ryan Lochte's got this covered. Let's let Ryan Lochte be the brains of this operation. Because if you didn't know this, a keen intellect or penchant for detailed stratagems does not define Ryan Lochte. What does? Let's hear from Ryan Lochte. What defines me? Ryan Lochte. Or maybe I'm totally wrong. Maybe I've got it totally backwards. In interviews over the years like that one or like this one. Uh, What I was always good at was letting things go through, like through one ear, out the other, so to say. Ryan Lochte, perhaps, has been slowly carefully laying the groundwork to establish with overwhelming credibility that he indeed did believe he was being robbed at a Brazilian gas station. Because after all, what reasonable person could have believed that? Aha, there's the rub. We're not talking about a reasonable person. We're talking about Ryan Lochte, who could go into any court in the world and say, you're a hunter, not guilty by reason of Ryan Lochte. Is Ryan Lochte an embarrassment to the United States? Ryan Lochte kind of is the United States. I just wonder if the other part of what we're seeing right now is Gunnar Bentz trying to lay down the foundation for a future Lochte defense. On the show today, well, I am the media. You know that, right? And as such, I interview a presidential candidate on the gist today. Yesterday, we were talking about the Green Party candidates' idea of using quantitative easing to erase student debt. Today, I questioned Dr. Jill Stein about this. Full disclosure, this is what Dr. Stein had to say today about the media. We have a name for that old press. We call them the O-press or the re-press that make us depressed. So that's up in the spiel. But first, I'd like to give you two members of the media who buck the very trend Dr. Stein was speaking of. They are comedians and podcasters, Hari Kandabalu and W. Kamau Bell, Politically Reactive's The Podcast. Here's the interview. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts. And there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. It's not often on this show I get to invite a guest back in such close proximity to his first appearance, but Hari Kondabalu was so good that not only is he back, but his partner in crime, W. Kamau Bell, the co-hosts of Politically Reactive, are here to talk about their podcasts and their careers. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. 
Hello. So, Hari, this is what I forgot to ask you. I, I just want to start with this, because if I don't ask this totally <laughs> random-ass question, I'm sure. going to forget it again. Yeah. Why do you think President Obama jibes so well with Narendra Modi? Huh. Do you think he does. He, they get along. I really do think I do. think it's because Barack Obama is a very good actor. Mm-hmm. He's very charming. And he knows how to pretend... I mean, I'm saying this because I really don't like Narendra Modi. So, uh, no, I would yeah. assume you'd not. He has yeah. authoritarian tendencies. Authoritarian. He plays the Hindu card pretty uh, pr- pr- yeah, which bluntly. Is a ca- which is a card I, I did not know existed until... It's not in American Mata. editions. No. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't... I mean, I don't know why he jibes so well with him considering that, like, you know, for a lot of... I mean, they didn't even let him in the country when he was the chief minister of Gujarat yeah. because... You know, because of the claim that he contributed or committed a genocide in his home state. And now he's the prime minister of India. That's kind of a thing. So, I mean, I don't know. I guess it's out of necessity. He he knows how to make it work. That's the kindest reading. I don't know. I just think that there's something. First of all, I think it's genuine. If you look at Obama, when he's interacting with him, he does the smile that includes the eyes and not just the upturn of the lips. I think that there's he sees in Modi a little bit of himself. What? Which which part of himself? You know, Modi sees himself as a kind of guy who's upending dynasties and traditions, and probably Obama does too. Uh, I don't know about all that. See, but this is just a taste of the kind of depth that one might get on Politically Reactive. Kamal, why did you... You have so many podcasts. Why'd you want to do this one? (laughs) (laughs) You You have more podcasts than uh, the Bible has Psalms. Why did you (laughs) want to do this one? Well, thank you for noticing that was the goal. I was actually trying to start a podcast for every psalm in the Bible, so nobody's actually caught that yet, so mm-hmm. I appreciate that. You know, I have a lot of interests, and I have a lot of things that I care about. I mean, I feel like there's probably three more podcasts in me, but my wife won't let me do them. <laughs> it was really the idea of being able to work with Hari because we work together and Totally Biased, and, you know, we didn't finish that work, obviously. Hashtag cancellation. We finished the work about. We were yeah, we were we were done. <laughs> we weren't finished, but we were done. So it was really the opportunity to work with Hari was like, well, I, I will work myself into the ground if I get to do it with a friend of mine. What was the writing staff like on that show? Was it obviously comedians and funny people, but how much did you select for not only political passion and awareness, but specific policy areas even? I mean, I think there was a sense that I did want one of everybody in the room, <laughs> but we did try to do that. Like, uh, you know, I live in the Bay Area, and I've always found, like, the best conversations are conversations that it's, if we always talk about reaching across lines as if we're talking about the left and the right. But I feel like the left has a lot of lines where we need to reach across, and those are the best conversations. So I, there was a sense that if we had gone on to a third season, we would have had, like, you know, a 100 writers in the room just so we could get <laughs> one of everybody represented on the planet. Like... Hari brought his South Asian perspective, but then we also had a partner in Chelly who's South Asian, but brings a totally different South Asian perspective. So it, there was a sense that I wanted to be able to turn to everybody in the room and go, I don't know, what do South Asians from Queens think about this, Hari? I mean, it, it was also, we held, we kind of checked each other in a way. You know, I think in a lot of writers' rooms where there isn't diversity, you could say whatever you want, and which is, cause that's part of the process, you figure it out. And then you're like, is this racist or not? And then you're like, oh, we have that one intern. Yeah. What do they think? <laughs> right. And that intern walks in the room and goes, 
I just think I don't want to get fired, so no, yeah. I don't think it's racist at all. Well, that's, right. a, that's a great joke. It's not going to lead to a letter-writing campaign. And then everyone also does the thing where like, ah, but don't you understand, the target of the joke is this righteous target. Mm-hmm. Uh, therefore, if the steps along the way yeah. maybe embody doing an over-the-top impression, it's okay. And then you're like, is the check worth more than my <laughs> dignity? Yes. Yeah. So, come on, was there a specific time when having that kind of awareness in the room made you change your mind on something or you got woke on a certain issue it's funny i feel like more often it was that we would get into really thick discussions about things and at some point we realized wait a minute we haven't written any jokes like it would be like a thing where like there would be a lot of back and forth and i would be observing pushback between people in the room about an issue and that conversation became more interesting than the fact that like wait we have a show to tape in two hours and like the older (laughs) writers in the room would be like What's going on here? Yes, yes. We did have a lot of that. Like the, the the more veteran writers were like, don't we just write 15 pages of jokes and go home? Like, why are we sitting here talking about this like it matters? Right. I think a big part of that show was balance. It was learning to have those conversations, know when to curb them, and having people teach us, the newer writers were mostly you know people of color, women who did, have normally don't get opportunities, to write hard jokes. Like by hard jokes, I mean very clear punchlines, you know, things that like will make people laugh and, and quickly. Yeah. You know, in a late night. So in the mean, beginning, Harry, were you saying in the beginning, would you say in the beginning, maybe you were contributing great ideas, but they weren't necessarily jokes? Yeah. 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 I would yeah. say that for my career, that's been generally <laughs> the case where I think I, I'm more of an ideas guy than a joke guy with my stand up. In fact, I, I, mean, I don't know if we've discussed this. I find the audience a little intrusive on my act, to be honest, with their with their noise slash laughter or whatever. So I just, yeah, I think I was definitely somebody who didn't know how to how to write. There was a lot of us who didn't know how to write for TV. Come on, would you say that the uh, politically reactive podcast? One great thing about podcasts is that you could go niche in a few ways: the your interests, but also you could just figure. I don't have to slow down to let the audience catch up. I don't have to over-explain things. Was that ever a problem on the TV show? Yeah, I think there was that. When I got the show, I was like, oh, great, I have a TV show. And then at some point it goes, it's a late night talk show. It is? Like, I was not, that was not what I thought I was pitching. Well, yeah, it's going to come on and you're going to be up against these shows. And suddenly you find yourself in articles and in a universe where I, suddenly I was being, like, talked about amongst Jimmy Fallon. And it was just like, that's not what the goal was at all. And I really felt like the hindrance was like, Suddenly, it's like suddenly I'm talking about how to compete with Jimmy Fallon's viral nature, and and one of the execs from FX is like, "What celebrities do you have in your Rolodex?" And it's Aww. like, first of all, I don't have a Rolodex, and second of all, the biggest celebrity I know is Chris Rock, and he's the producer of the show. Right. <laughs> so let me pitch you this and he, idea. And he yeah. also does Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> uh, okay, I just got had this idea. So you go right up uh, against James Corden, you get four people in the car, and you lip sync to Martin Luther King speeches. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> that would have been That's, a great segment. <laughs> That, actually that would have been a great idea where were you in the writer's room we'd be we'd be at season five right now if we had that idea so you talked about um having discussions in the room and maybe getting to a place of agreement what about between you two guys on this podcast do you have any areas either policy or tone disagreements that you know about that which can be a good thing you know which can create a tension that's compelling Comedically, I think we have different styles, but I feel like with point of view, generally speaking, we're 
you know, we're more similar. Also, I think Kamal's more reasonable than I am. Yeah, like, yeah, that, that's true. I'm definitely more reasonable. Than yeah, I, <laughs> I think more than having areas of disagreement, we just have areas of being informed in different ways. And so there's lots of areas that Hari has a lot of knowledge in that I don't have a lot of knowledge in so that we can bring that together. I think it's there. We certainly have had disagreement, but mostly our disagreements are about who gets to talk when on the podcast and who talks more than the other person. I want to talk to you guys about now. You, Kamau, have been nominated for an Emmy in a weirdly named category for your CNN show. What is it? (laughs) (laughs) A category. I mean, thank you, the Emmys. I hadn't heard of that category, but I will take it. It's uh, Outstanding Unstructured Reality. And as you do those, which epi- I just call life, yeah, I just call life things That's, that happen. Yeah, I'm, 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 I, my life is apparently is an unstructured reality, so I'm doing a good job. And as you do those episodes, and as you spend hours and days cutting them, are are you saying to yourself, "This is really unstructured"? I mean, there's a lot of structure <laughs> to your show. <laughs> well, I think the thing is happening is that TV is sort of moving at a very quick clip, and things that that used to not be TV or now TV. And now it's like with all this new content. And so the Emmys are, are making an attempt to keep up with that, which I appreciate. But in that category, it is sort of a, a mixed bag of things. None of those shows seem like any of the other shows. Like I'm up against born this way, which is an A&E show about mentally uh, handicapped people. And there's a uh, gaycation with Ellen page and there's deadliest catch and there's intervention. Like it's just sort of a like, Oh, of course all those shows are together. I want the one super show combined all of those episodes. Oh. <laughs> I want Ellen Page uh, fishing for deep sea trout while you question the fisheries. That's, yes, that yes, is no, not inevitable. <laughs> At this point, everything's going to hell. That is very possible. Gacation with Ellen Page. Um, was your first one the clan uh, episode? Yes, that was our clickbait episode. You know what the Bible says about racial marriage? An abomination of sin. On the list of sins, where is interracial marriage? There's like murder, and, and is interracial marriage equal to that, or is it? It'll be above because it's an abomination. So it's so murder. So it's worse than murder. Yeah. Okay. All right. What was your philosophy of how you wanted to engage these Klansmen? Are you calling me a punk? Is that no, what you're no, saying? No, no, no. <laughs> hey, I'm, hey, I'm, hey, I'm come actually... on. He's saying you weren't aggressive enough with those Klansmen. Yeah. You should have been more aggressive <laughs> at the cross <laughs> burning. <laughs> Uh, it just I, means it must out. have been so intimidating, but they're, it, they're also a ripe comic opportunity. And yet, mm-hmm. if you make them seem too comic, you humanize them. There are so many considerations is what I'm trying to point out. Well, it's funny. You're basically having the same discussion that I had with the showrunner at, during, the, during the editing of the episode. When I got there, certainly, I think you can see the fear on my face. And I'm not, yeah. I wasn't acting. And I feel like I feel justified in being afraid of the Klan. I feel like history is on my side with that argument. And so I did. At first I got there and I was a little bit like on my heels. And then as I settled down, I used comedy to sort of settle myself down. And there was a lot of times where I was sort of making them laugh or sort of making fun of the things they do and making them laugh at the hypocrisy and all those things. And then when we got in the edit room, the showrunner was like, if we make them too funny, we're humanizing them and they aren't scary anymore. And I was like, have you heard of the Klan? Like, <laughs> I they're they're going to be scary no matter how ridiculous they appear on film because they're the clan and I, to me it was like it was about demystifying <laughs> this thing and wanting to show that like I could stand up to them and not like if you know if I throw a chair at them it's just a Springer episode yeah. but if I sit there and have dialogue with them and make them laugh and make myself laugh and we and we sort of connect on a human level I'm demystifying them and so the question that you do when you make these things is who's the audience for this show. I would like to make the audience for people for the for people for me and people like me. Whereas there's sometimes a temptation 
when you're making television on a big network like CNN to basically make it for white people. And so I had to push, we had a lot of pushback and forth on that. And, and that was taped. And did it indeed air before Donald Trump did his non-disavowment, which you played on Political Reactive, I think 16 times the last episode <laughs> I heard. But was that, that happened all before Trump didn't disavow the Klan, right? We, yeah, we taped it before Trump was even a factor. Yeah. And a little bit, I think when we taped it, there was some sort of talk in CNN about like, is it weird to be talking about the Klan? Nobody's thinking about the Klan. Yeah. And then Trump said, I can make them relevant again. And he did. And so it really worked out really great for us that the Klan had become a national news story in the interim. So it looked like we were right on. We were like, as if we had shot it like the week before. From your CNN show and Hari, your last, uh, your album that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Mainstream- I'm glad I'm glad we finally brought me into this, sir, because the only question I got earlier was about the Indian prime minister. <laughs> I, I could ask about, uh, you know, other South Asian heads of state. Right, right. You, or or uh, the Pakistani intelligence <laughs> agency. Perhaps you know about that. Something in this country, too, might be useful <laughs> also, sir. The, okay, so your last album, Mainstream American Comic. Taped in Portland, yes? Yes. And you did that Portland episode of your CNN show, yes? Yes. Yes. So here's my question. Is Portland and the idea of gentrification, do you guys think this is a real problem problem or more of something fun to make fun of, $12 juices, that is an extravagance? How bad a problem do you think gentrification is? Well, that's not not gentrification. Those are the results of something, Mm -hmm. right? That's not the actual problem is the $12 juice. It's not being able to afford rent. It's, It's about not being able to pay your taxes because the value of your house that you bought, which should give you power, is is too high. It's about, you know, predators trying to buy your house with cash and because you're, you're, you know, you don't have money, you take it. I mean, that's what this is really about. And I think what Kamal's episode does so well is that he's able to poke fun at all the silliness of gentrification, all, all the silliness of Portland, the, how progressive it claims to be while ignoring the fact black people are being pushed out. But then he talks to developers. He talks to somebody who actually has control and power. And with all these gentrification discussions, we never get to the heart of it. And I thought that episode is the one that will win him the Emmy. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they submitted the KKK one, but thanks. Uh, <laughs> and I'll say this, because that episode, when we went to Portland, I had had my own, like, I, that really was a personal episode to me, because I had gone to Portland to perform several times, and I always felt like something's weird in this city. And, you know, I live in the Bay Area, so I, I've experienced with gentrification, but there was something more clear in Portland than I'd felt in any other city. And so it would have been real easy to go to Portland and just shoot the $12 juices and the and the dog wearing clothes and the hipsters on their bicycles. And we have some of that in there. But then we get to see a meeting of black people talking about how gentrification is defe- directly affecting their neighborhood and how it's changing the face of their city and how they don't how they don't feel at home anymore, even though they've lived in Portland all their lives and a black woman's crying. To me, that's the show. The uh, the the hipsters is the clickbait to get you into the real issue. So, yeah, gentrification absolutely is a real issue. It basically gentrification assumes that cities should always operate at a profit mm-hmm. and that cities should be there for the people who have the most money. And that if you don't have the money, then you have to get out, which is not how I think society is supposed to work. Well, listen, I have been enjoying the Politically Reactive podcast. Uh, good luck. I don't know which episode will win you the Emmy. Let's be honest. Ellen Page, Gaycation. That's a juggernaut. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how you could possibly knock it off its perch. But W. Kamau Bell and Hari Kondabolu are the hosts of Politically Reactive in your podcast feed. It's like every week these days. Every week. Like. Unbelievable. Great to meet you, Kamau. Great to have you back, Hari. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, man. 
Now, do I get my own solo episode in a couple weeks? Is that yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll just do a cycle. And now the spiel. New York's Lower East Side, one-time home to tenements, constant home to immigrants, current home to gentrifiers. Today, it was also the home of the daily special of Australian lamb chops, roasted corn hash, and a chimichurri sauce. Yep, that was the featured menu item in the basement of a Holiday Inn, a diner that has Red Booth's brand new vintage Coca-Cola signs and a melange of old photos on the walls that don't have much to do with the Lower East Side or each other. There's the Chrysler building. Over there, there's Muhammad Ali. They're trying hard for a retro look in this place. And in case you missed that, there's the name, the Retro Bar and Grill. This is the backdrop for a press conference by the presidential ticket of Jill Stein and her running mate, Ajamu Baraka. Yesterday, the two candidates were given an hour in primetime on CNN to answer questions in a town hall format. There's almost no story about the current presidential race that doesn't at least mention the potential for the Greens and the Libertarians to take some votes from either the Republicans or the Democrats. Most polls include them. And a good 2 or 3% of Americans consistently say, I'm going to vote for the Greens. Now, I'm under no illusion that Stein will win the presidency, come close, or if the latest polls are accurate, do much to slow Trump from getting steamrolled in November. And I've also covered upwards of, I don't know, hundreds of political events in my life. Still, I am surprised at the size of the crowd here in the basement of the Holiday Inn in New York's Lower East Side. There are nine members of the media in attendance. Nine. Jill Stein is here to unveil the Green New Deal. It's her environmental agenda. It includes declaring a state of emergency, eliminating production of fossil fuels, which, she says, will have the added bonus of not drawing us into wars over oil. After Stein explains her agenda, they take questions. And this is the reason I came here, to ask her to flesh out her proposal that college debt be paid off via quantitative easing. If you want a fuller explanation of why this is a bad idea, or actually not an idea, I dedicated yesterday's spiel to it. Go back and listen. I will wait. Okay, you're back. Well, Dr. Stein is now taking questions. I was sitting in the front row. There's not too many other people here anyway, so I asked permission, and when given, I dragged my retro diner chair next to Dr. Stein. I'm looking for specifics, but I start with the general. I wanted to ask you about your proposal about student debt and quantitative easing. What is the purpose of the Fed? So our larger purpose here is to get students out of debt and to liberate a generation that's held hostage by unpayable debt, no good jobs, don't have a place to live, don't have a family, the birth rate is crashing, the climate is uh, unraveling on their watch. So our main goal here is to do for the students what our political establishment did for Wall Street, and that is come up with the resources in the needed time frame to bail out Wall Street. We can do that for students. So our, our first proposal is that we have the Fed uh, essentially buy up the debt and um, uh, uh, essentially cancel that debt by expanding the money supply, which amounts to putting real resources into the hands of everyday people so that as students earn their money, instead of paying back debt, pouring that money into a black hole, 
their dollars instead are their own to spend into that economy. Right. But what is the purpose of the Fed? By statute, what is the purpose of the Fed? Uh, you know, I'm, I can't quote you the statute, but the Fed is intended to um, maintain the stability of the economy, uh, to actually reduce unemployment, uh, and ensure that the monetary system is working. It has two, right. It has two purposes. Yes. It reduces yes. unemployment, and the other one is keep inflation low. So yes, this would right. be a new purpose for the Fed. It would never have been used before, even though you can make the case that with the, with the, account, with the uh, bailout with the banks, it was used, but it was for that purposes. This would be a new purpose. So would you change the statute? statute? Would do you have a radical rethinking of the purpose of the Fed? So I'll have a more detailed answer for you when we roll out our complete plan uh, on canceling student debt. Now, I had come armed with detailed questions about the holders of student debt, the regressiveness of this proposal, the unprecedented nature of what would likely be the single largest intervention in a one-time public welfare program the moral hazards this would represent for holders of all kinds of debt, medical, housing, anything really, and why quantitative easing should be used in any situation other than when the interest rates are near zero and we have to think of other ways to reduce rates further out on the yield curve. But it's pretty clear that the answers I'm going to get will be along the lines of, we'll have a more detailed explanation in the future. So I try another angle. So Stein was just talking about declaring a state of emergency under her Green New Deal. But Congress won't even pass cap and trade. Doesn't that, like the quantitative easing idea, just bring with it its own raft of procedural problems? So the commonality between the Fed proposal, the quantitative easing, and the state of emergency is going around Congress because they can't even pass cap and trade. So wouldn't this worry someone who worries about the expansive powers of the executive, what you're proposing? Working with the Fed to uh, bail out students like they bailed out Wall Street, uh, it's analogous to the steps and the uh, extraordinary measures that the Fed took in the face of the Wall Street um, meltdown. So to that extent, this is not new, um, and it would rely on the... Um, uh, existing authority of the Fed to meet a state of economic emergency. Let me stop her here. It's not clear that it would be under the Fed's authority. And it's analogous only if you think that any solution to one specific financial crisis can be easily, legally, and smartly applied to another not-quite crisis. I was then told the candidate would be taking no more questions, from me at least, but I did talk to vice presidential candidate Baraka, and I asked him to level with me. And just in general, bottom line, it's really complicated. I'm not going to pretend I really understand quantitative easing. Do you? Uh, I'm struggling with it. I mean, I have, we have some economic advisors that are trying to help us get clarity. I know that I have some, some real concerns about it and has some questions answered. But it, it, it appeared that quantitative easing was such a massive hustle. But his thinking goes, if that hustle can help the banks, why not the people? On the way out, I saw Dr. Stein again. I thanked her for her time. I invited her on the gist. And I told her, you understand, I'm trying to get to specifics in the same way that you think the media should demand specifics out of Trump, out of Hillary Clinton. And she said she appreciated that. But she also said that to some extent, a campaign is a wish list. 
I said to her, but I think specificity is important. I don't think it's a difference in vision, for instance, where the Green Party stands and where most Democrats stand on global warming. I told her, I think in his heart of hearts, Barack Obama would like to pass some version of this new Green Deal that you're talking about. It's just that it can't be done in real life. She disagreed. She pointed to concessions the president's made to business or other energy interests. I think about this as she leaves. Well, concessions sometimes have to be made, don't they? That's what I think. That's in my world. But that doesn't seem to be a fundamental part of the world of a third-party candidate putting forth the magical thinking of a multisyllabic economic term as a kind of get-out-of-debt-free card. To her, there needn't be concessions of conscience or to reality. And that's it for today's show. Mary Wilson defines Mary Wilson as Mary Wilson, just producer Mary Wilson. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, tends to let water roll onto his back, safe to speak. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, is considering greenlighting a Gunnar Bentz and Jack Conger advice podcast. You write in with a question, they give you advice, you do the opposite, and things should be fine. The gist... As long as Ryan Lochte put his hand next to his heart when he lied to Rio police, I don't see what was so wrong. Oomperu deperu du peru, and thanks for listening.